In a world where computer science, one professor stands out amongst them all. Dude, don't. I got it. You know, oh, wait, is <laughs> cursing allowed? There's like a bird just flying straight up my window. I do have that effect. Birds just flock to me when I speak, so maybe you should turn down your, your speaker <laughs> or something like that. Welcome, everybody, to our end episode of Mathematical Dive. Mathematical Dive is a podcast produced by the Math Ambassador Program of the University of Waterloo. My name is Yu Tian Wang, and I am one of your co-hosts for this program. I'm a fourth, fifth year math teaching student, soon to be graduated after the recording of this episode. And we have our uh, my co-host, Josue. How do you pronounce your name, Josue? Josue. Yeah, don't worry about that. Uh, most people mess it up. Would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, yeah, I guess I should, I should cover those same things. Uh, I am a fourth year student in pure math and combinatorics and optimization. If you don't know what that means, don't worry, because I don't really know either. And I'm really happy to be here. We had quite the character on today. We had Professor Dave Tompkins, a continuing lecturer in the School of Computer Science at UW. And in our discussion, we talked a little bit about teaching computer science, uh, some of his fame on the internet, particularly on Reddit. And then of course, any discussion with Dave Tompkins has to involve Coke Zero. <laughs> we also talked about his research project when he was doing his PhD at University of British Columbia, which was the UBC SAD project, a framework for the satisfiability questions in logic. Before we start our episode, the Math Ambassador team would like to acknowledge that the University of Waterloo is on the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabeg and Haudenosaunee peoples. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldeman Tract land promised to the Six Nations, which includes six miles on each side of the Grand River. We are joined today by Professor Dave Tompkins. Hi, would you care to introduce yourself for us? Hi, my name is Dave Tompkins. I am, uh, my official title is Continuing Lecturer in the David R. Sheridan School of Computer Science in the Faculty of Mathematics at the University of Waterloo. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm excited. We'll see what happens. You mentioned you're a continuing lecturer, and I did a bit of research beforehand, just preparing this podcast. And within the last six years, your most common frequent courses or CS135, Designing Functional Programs, CS136, Elementary Algorithm Design and Data Abstraction, and CS100, Introduction to Computing Through Applications. And the last time we talked, a 300 what non-first year course was in 2013-2014. So why do you choose to teach the first year courses and like focusing on teaching the first year courses? Because I know a lot of profs like are more interested in teaching a high uh, senior course or higher level course just because it's more into the research topics or it's such. Yeah, so there's I, I like teaching at all the different levels. It's, it is quite different, though, teaching a third-year course than it is a first-year course. Students have a different maturity level. There's different expectations. And there's just the, the depth that you get to go into is, is quite different. I've, I have been involved in teaching first-year because there's a lot of organization and coordination that goes into first-year. You mentioned I, my title. It's continuing lecture. 
What that means is that I don't have a big research component to my job. Most research faculty have what we call a 40-40-20. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. That means that 40% of their job is spent doing research, 40% of their time is doing uh, teaching, and then 20% of their time they're doing administrative work. Okay, so that's a normal, pretty much if you take a vanilla professor at most universities in Canada, um, they're going to be a 40-40-20. Okay, and so what my position is, is I'm actually 60-40-0, if you prefer. So 60% teaching, 40% doing administrative work, and then I do 0% research. I can do research, and sometimes I, I do try to carve out some research, but literally my annual evaluation that the, the boss does takes my, whatever my research value is and multiplies it by zero. And that's, a, <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's how my evaluation is done at the end of the year. So because I am a, um, a higher proportion on teaching and administration, that means that organizing first-year courses, which is a lot of teaching and administration fits, I, I can accommodate it more easily than some of the other faculty members. Yeah, anyway, to get back to your question originally, is I, I love teaching first year. First year is very exciting. We get to mold them. You get these, uh, you get these students who are like, you get to shake up their world and introduce them to new things and sort of ease them into university. They're not as jaded as third year students. They still have They're, a little flame of hope. That mm -hmm. well, yeah, <laughs> and there's some naivety there and there's some excitement, you know, they're excited to be in, you know, first year and stuff like that. And so I do really enjoy that. I'm, I'm you know, I may transition into other courses later on, but I have been pre predominantly focused on the first year experience. Do you ever like miss teaching the upper year courses at all? Or has uh, the first year experience been enough? Um, no, I do. I do. I do sometimes. I'll tell you what, when I, when I have my first year students and they're doing something, I don't know, something very first year and I kind of roll in my eyes. And then sometimes then I might appreciate more that I was, I'd be uh, teaching a third year, but the grass is always greener. When I'm in third year, you know, I might be reflecting back about, you know, I, would, oh, I wish I was back <laughs> in first year teaching first year courses. <laughs> so there's a large number of faculty in the school of computer science. And so we have to sort of fill in the gaps and make sure that we, we have all the courses covered. Right. And so um, right around that time you're talking about, we had a new lecturer come in who was teaching a lot of the third year course that I was teaching. And then, then I pivoted to be more in first year too as well. So. And we appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, first years get to experience you that way. So. <laughs> I mean, you have a really good reputation with first years. Like I did, I, um, you have an average effectiveness level. What, like, what is an effectiveness level on, like, I found this on your Okay. Website. So you've been scraping my webpage. I can yes, I have. <laughs> okay. That's fine. So the way it works is um, at the end of the year, at the end of the term, and people listening to this, if they're, they're new students coming to Waterloo, they probably don't know how this works, but they do what we do, we call a course evaluation, all right? And so students fill out these course evaluations and, and some students treat them very seriously, some students don't. I would encourage all students to take them seriously because they are important. They are under review constantly and there's a committee right now of you reviewing how these course evaluations work. And there are unfortunately some biases to them. So for example, women tend to score a little bit lower, both male students and female students tend to rate women lower for whatever reason. It's just maybe some, some subconscious bias. And there's also issues related to, you know, the, the spectrum of diversity, people of different sexual orientations or different ethnic backgrounds might have 
prejudices against them as well. So they are not a perfect instrument. But what Ina's question was, is there's one question that's actually the most important. It's kind of snuck in the middle. And it says, how is the overall effectiveness of this instructor? And that's actually the only real number. They care about the other numbers, but that's the only number that most people care about. Okay, so that is like the one question that, is, so what Ina is talking about is I have aggregated that particular question over all my course evaluations and put it on my website. How do you define effectiveness? Like, well, that's it. You ask the student, right? The question is for the students. And so it's however that individual student interprets it, right? Whether or not they are effective or not. Thing I did notice uh, beforehand, and I don't know if it was filled with Diet Coke, but I saw you had a Diet Coke bottle. Is that a, or is it Coke Zero? I don't remember. It's Coke <laughs> it Zero, is, isn't it? It is Coke Zero. Okay. Um, and I'm almost infamous for drinking Coke Zero. I often joke in my lectures that I would, I would blatantly sell out. Like I would just wear Coke Zero, like almost like a NASCAR racer. You know how they have like <laughs> logos all over them and stuff like that. I would totally sell out and wear Coke Zero stuff. You know, it'd be um, cool if this episode is sponsored by Coke Zero, which it isn't, but it'd be yes, cool if I, we have sponsors based on, <laughs> I guess, interest. So it became, I, I started drinking Coke Zero a lot. Oh, it was probably when it first came out, which I don't know exactly when it came out, but it was probably about 12 years ago. And uh, we've been buddies ever since. The students know I drink a lot of Coke Zero because I usually go through a, a can and a half per lecture, probably maybe two cans per lecture, depending on how it goes, one can per lecture, but at least a can per lecture. And so often I teach two lectures back to back. So I'll walk in with like three cans and it just looks <laughs> weird to see this prof come in and slap three cans of Coke Zero in the front of the office, uh, on my desk when, I, when, I'm, uh, when I'm teaching. And uh, so as a result of that, people know me for Coke Zero. Students have have given me like at the end of the term, they've brought me like a, a case of Coke Zero or a couple of Coke Zeros <laughs> to say, hey, thanks for the term. I've had people send me Coke Zero in the mail and stuff like that. So how do you send Coke Zero in the mail? Because like, wouldn't it cause all the fuss? And once you open it, just <laughs> boom. Amazon. Oh, I guess. Right, Amazon does grocery delivery and uh, a lot of places do grocery delivery. So I don't think it's as bad as, as you might think. But uh, for whatever reason, I have been linked to Coke Zero, and it's a proud partnership. I'm happy to be there, but it's a very one-sided. Coke Zero does gives me nothing. But I mean, I, I do frequently have to go. I do drink a lot during the day. And if I don't have any, you can. my wife will attest that I get very cranky. The simple fact of the matter is I don't drink coffee. So I don't like coffee, coffee or tea. And so Coke Zero is my caffeine source. And it's sugar-free. They got some funky chemical in there that tricks your brain, makes you think you have sugar, but it's not. And I'll be honest, I think if we had caffeinated water in Canada, I might switch to just caffeinated water. But as far as I know, caffeinated water is not allowed in Canada. It's only available in the U.S. Um, but to I me, I would... like people have those caffeine powders. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like I've tried powders? them before. And I've tried different, I, I have a few on backup just in case I run a out of Coke Zero and I need some caffeine. Mm. Uh, but I've never been a fan of coffee or tea and I need my caffeine to get through the day. When you walk to class, you just carry three bottles of three cans of Coke, three bottles or cans of Coke Zero, or do you put it like in a bag and then, and then once you're on the lecture <laughs> desk, you just grab a bottle out? Yeah, exactly. That's pretty much my ritual. 
uh, when I teach a lecture, I, I carry like a messenger bag and it has a, it has slot for like, I can fit up to four cans in there and along with my laptop and, you know, everything else I need for when I, when I'm teaching, I try to, I have like a go bag ready to go and I keep it in my office and uh, away I go. And then I plunk out the Coke zeros and, uh, and away I go. Have there ever been any incidents like when, when you try to open a can of Coke zero during a lecture? So, so once I was drinking, I was drinking and for some reason a student just barreled into me and it spilled all down my front of my shirt. And it was right in between two lectures. Like I said, sometimes I teach two lectures back to back. And so I was in MC. So I actually quickly ran to DC where my office is and changed my shirt. And then I ran back and I made it right before class started. So that was, but that was a bad incident. But the funny part of that was uh, two girls came up to me at the end of the class and they go, um, can you settle a bet for us? I go, sure. And they go, did you change your shirt? <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> so I think they were in the back of the room going wait didn't he have a red shirt on no no he's wearing a black shirt now and so they were going back and forth because <laughs> they were they thought they were going crazy because I changed my shirt uh so yeah aside from that once in a while you get a, a can uh you know exploding or something like that but nothing too serious there's been no official casualties okay there's been good. zero working incidents of uh there's been zero accidents or no official, you know. Do you have a sign for that in your office? That exactly. Like, the door? Like, <laughs> like, it's, been zero, it's been blank days since the it's last. It's been infinity <laughs> days since there's been a COVID zero related death at this institution. <laughs> yeah, and if that doesn't bring you to Waterloo, I don't know what will. <laughs> connecting to first years and, and then you're also connecting to students in general. You're also are well known on Reddit on the fame, on the famous slash infamous you Waterloo subreddit having a few a AMAs which stands for ask me anything and one of the most popular or first pop-up posts about you Reddit post is are you overrated is Dave Tompkins <laughs> overrated which you commented back and also got interviewed by NPR yeah that was I was internet famous for like a little bit there it was really funny i'd even walk around campus and i'd hear oh, i'd hear people whispering is that Dave Tompkins? <laughs> it, was, it was like really weird is that him it was really surreal it's it's pretty much died down now i did have a blow up a couple months ago which i just realized now i, I need to go back and try to address but that particular blow up like people i got so i got a, i got a few at that incident i got a couple like nasty i got like one death threat and one threat against my family so it's also the, that is never welcome like, yeah the negative side of being uh infamous but i had people contact me like so my my inbox flooded so much i, I couldn't even respond to people but i had the rant was the student who complained that i tried to get my students to engage with each other in class first of all he ranted that i drank too much coke zero right <laughs> and people thought uh, and I admitted, yeah, I drink a lot of Coke Zero. And, and so people actually thought it might have been like an underground advertising campaign for Coke Zero. <laughs> like they, they thought it was some Machiavellian kind of thing going on in the background. But um, they were basically complaining about how I was trying to get them to interact with other students in the classroom because I'd have little breakout questions, you know, talk to your neighbor, try to solve this little problem, and then we'll discuss it sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And they were just ranting about that. 
and basically I came back and I said, suck it up because that's, that's important learning. And this is how things work in the real world too. You have to interact with people as much as you may love solving math proofs in your basement by yourself and not interacting with anyone. Is that you? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not in the basement. I'm up on the first floor. So uh, we're not completely the same. (laughs) There are going to be times in your life. Well, you know, he's here, he's doing this, right? So obviously he has some connection with the real world. Anyway, (laughs) so when I came back and said, you know, you do have to interact with people. I had so many people contact me that were technical leads. I like the vice president of HBO contacted me. Like, what? 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 Wait, you can have a special brain by you. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> and what happened was the post got picked up by the best of Reddit. So people who, some people just pay attention to like the best of Reddit, which is like the sort of, and because my post got picked up in the best of Reddit, then it got a lot of eyeballs Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think someone told me it was well over like a million people read my post sort of thing, which is wow. hard to imagine. I don't even know how valid that is, but whatever. And so I got like hundreds of emails from these people all over the world saying, yeah, encourage your students to interact with the- each other. It is, the, you know, when I hire people, the most important skill that I'm looking for is can they interact with people? Can they work on a team together? And so that was a really surreal moment in my life to have all these people contact me. And then it became so popular, as you said, NPR radio did an interview with me about it. And it was just kind of weird. I don't really spend a lot of time in Reddit. I try to avoid it. People sometimes at me or or reference me when I get mentioned and sometimes I'll, I'll pop in there. I think that is a part of the community that is important to reach out to because they are often people who might get slighted in other on-campus events like you're both involved in MathSoc and other math ambassador programs and other things like that there are students who are engaged in different ways on campus uh, the people who participate a lot on reddit may not be plugged into those same things and may not be engaged with those same things but they're still valid university of waterloo students and so i would like to try to reach out to them uh, and try to engage with them I, I did a couple lunch meetups which i thought was fun uh, I went to a shawarma place and I bought a bunch of shawarma for uh, some of the Redditors. People said, oh, this is an amazing idea. And they like sent me money to buy shawarmas for some of our Redditors <laughs> and stuff like that. People who weren't in the Waterloo area. So that was pretty cool. And I'll, I'll say it now because our president, Ferdin, is leaving us at the, right at the time that we're doing this podcast. But I had been working with his office and what we were going to do. This was right before, right be- you know, COVID ruined everything. But we were going to have an AMA, like a, it's not an AMA, like a, a Reddit meetup where people came and he was going to make a surprise guest appearance. <gasps> and I think that would have blown everyone's mind. That because, would have blown yeah. the front page of the subreddit where you even got to the <laughs> front page of Reddit itself. Because there were, there was especially a time, I don't think I see it so much now, but say a few years ago, say three, four years ago, where people love Faraday. They would make up memes about him. They would... They would throw his picture everywhere. And, uh, yeah. you know, I remember like, reading a post uh, where someone saw him outside, like they saw him in the liquor store and they were freaking out. Oh my God. I <laughs> yeah. I think he was also like nicknamed Fairy Daddy. Yeah, like, exactly. Not so, like this is not um, worded by the ambassadors, just were paraphrasing from Reddit. <laughs> <laughs> and so there was a lot, you know, a lot of, say, fanboyism, for the lack of a better term, about Faraday. And so I thought if he showed up at a Reddit meetup, that would just 
that was going to be peak. And I'm really sad that that never happened, but his office was really excited. They're like, okay, yeah, let's make this happen. And I got to meet, meet Sheridan two occasions. One was the, um, the Women's Day dinner in 2020, like literally the Friday before COVID hit. And then I got invited to and the president's um, circle, like in round table, round table for one of, in the following spring term for one of the sessions, which was really cool. Cool. I met him a few times as well. Um, the weirdest interaction I had with him was at a, a, a poker event. So there's a, a like a, a network of, it's, it's a lot of IT professionals and people involved in technology in different ways. They have a, a poker tournament. Obviously that's also been shut down with COVID. There was a, a big one and it was being held at Shopify. It was pretty cool. And, and like the mayor of Kitchener was there. The mayor of Waterloo was there. It was a big poker tournament and Farrah did showed up <laughs> and it was schmoozing with people and stuff like that. So I thought that was kind of a, an interesting interaction. I got to say hi to him there. Is it hard for faculty members to meet Farrah then or like generally like people up in the president's office or is no, there... no, I think, I mean, not really. I think that I, I, I don't want to speak on behalf of all faculty. Um, I think we see them mostly as peers, more esteemed peers, but not like, you know, so far above it, not like God level sort of thing like that. Um, similar, you know, and it's also weird as I become more of a mature faculty member. Maybe when I was, you know, the very first time I was a, uh, a faculty member, you know, I remember going up to the dean at the time and introducing myself and he already knew who I was and that was pretty cool. So I was a little nervous about that. But then now, you know, I know our current dean. I've known him since I've been here. And so it, it, it just becomes sort of second nature. So you, you give them some reference because they have an important job title and stuff like that. But you know, it's, it's nothing to, to get nervous about or anything like that. Yeah, you don't fanboy them. It's just the students that do so. <laughs> And, and students, sometimes I do it just for the sake of doing it, I think. So you got your PhD and your master's at University of British Columbia. Is it during your PhD that you developed the UBC SAT project with oh, Dr. Sure. Holger Hoos? I know nothing about this apart from like that you published a few papers on it and you created this software or application that allows algorithms in, which do you want to talk about that? Okay, so I'll, I'll go a little academic on you. And maybe for some people listening, this might be the only thing they care about. <laughs> um, but if you studied logic at all, you may have heard about, say, something like a truth table. You're trying to plan a dinner party and you're trying to decide who do you invite. And you can't invite Alice if Bob is there because they have oh, a thing. Oh, I love and those don't questions. Do that. And, and you've seen these kind of logic puzzle kind of questions, right? Yeah. What happens though is, let's say there's just two possible variables that it could be true or false. With two variables, there are four possible outcomes, right? But with three variables, there are eight possible outcomes. Four variables, there's 16, and it's two to the N, it becomes an exponential blow-up problem. And if there's 250 variables, there are actually more possible outcomes than there are atoms in the universe, right? So these problems blow up exponentially really big and really hard. What you're looking for is what the satisfiability problem is, is there's sort of two sides to this coin. 
Um, if, and if you study computer science theory, you will be exposed to this. If you're in computer science, you will definitely get exposed to it. If you're in math, depending on what courses you take, you may or may not get exposed I to this. I think they, yeah, they get, they get introduced at least to like truth tables, regardless of math. One you will definitely see truth tables. Yeah. But the satisfiability problem is given a logical formula, is there a combination of variables that guarantee that will make it true? Oh yeah, I've done okay. like this. Okay, and you may hear you may have heard about NP complete problems, right? And satisfiability is like the the three sat problem is like the the bedrock of all those satisfy of all those NP complete problems. And if you haven't heard about this topic, you and you sound like you might want to read more about it, you can go read Wikipedia or watch some cool YouTube videos on it. There's a lot of stuff out there. And so what happens is there's a lot of problems in the real world that can be reduced to pure logic. And the question is. Can you satisfy this problem? So can, a scheduling is a good example of something that in the real world gets re, can be reduced to this problem. Like say, for example, you have, um, say you're just working at Starbucks and you've got like 20 employees and they have all these constraints on their schedule. Can you come up with a schedule where everybody's happy and everybody, all the shifts are covered and everything like that, right? Um, and um, so that's an example of a problem that can be reduced to pure logic. Right? Is it possible to come up with a schedule that, that makes everybody happy? Then there's a, a related problem that says, okay, if you can't make everybody happy, what's the schedule that makes the most people happy? Right? And there's, there's other correlations to, and other related problems to this. And a lot of problems can be converted into logic, just like that scheduling problem can be converted into logic. There's a lot of other interesting problems that can be converted into satisfiability. And because satisfiability is kind of like the most purest form of it, um, there's a group of people out there who try to write what we call SAT solvers. So we call them SAT instead of satisfiability because we're lazy. So satisfiability solvers. And the idea is you give this piece of software a satisfiability problem and it can spit out, here's the optimal solution. So what I did is I wrote a framework to plug in a whole bunch of other satisfiability solvers. Part of the problem when I was doing research is I'd want to compare, okay, here's an interesting problem. Let's see how these 20 different algorithms compare on this particular problem. Some algorithms work better on some problems and some algorithms work better on other problems. And so what I did is I ended up building this framework where people could plug in their own algorithms and then execute them. And then you could compare them. And then you're also comparing apples to apples. Right. So say, for example, Ina implemented an algorithm and the way she coded it was pretty efficient, but uh, Joshua did it and his implementation was not as efficient. He's not as experienced a programmer, even though the two algorithms were the same, Ina's code run, might run faster. And so because they were all in the same framework, they were easier to compare apples to apples. Okay. Also, because they're in the same framework, it's easier to find algorithms. Because I don't even know how many algorithms were in it at the end. Uh, when I finished my PhD, but let's say 20-ish algorithms, different algorithms. And I wrote several of them myself and other people. For within the community, I became pretty famous because I was the one who, who created the software that had all these different algorithms and they were efficiently implemented. And you could just go to one-stop shopping and do all, run all these different algorithms. So it was really good for doing research on it. Because it was pretty solid and people liked it, it actually got picked up and used in a lot of different places. It was used in a billion dollar transaction, which was pretty cool. My wife's like, why didn't you sell it for money? And I'm like, I have to explain academia to her. But um, <laughs> I don't know if you know how, how Spectrum works, but the FCC, FCC in the US 
controls like you know how there's different radio stations at different frequencies yeah yeah I, I, I hope most of our listeners still know what a radio station is <laughs> but the idea is that a lot of the spectrum that was allocated for television stations and stuff like that was not was being phased out and was being resold back to cell phone carriers but it's a extremely our cno student here will, will understand it's what they call combinatorial auctions because someone might say, okay, I want that bit of spectrum, but only if I can get this bit of spectrum and that bit of spectrum. If I can't get those two, then that one's not good, mm -hmm. right? Like, so you would say, I'm gonna want spectrum A, C, and F. And another person might say, okay, well, I want F, G, and H, right? And, and then, but I'll pay this much more for that block of spectrum. And so that's this really complicated combinatorial problem. And in part of the solver, they need to solve a satisfiability problem and they used a UBC set. Mm. And this, this was like a, a billion dollars of auctioning happening all the time. <laughs> and at the heart of it, for one of the decision problems that had to be made, it was a SAT problem and they used my software. So that was pretty cool. I, I do feel kind of bad because when I took this position at the University of Waterloo, I did decide to put my research on pause. I am quite out of date now. I got, you know, I often get asked to review papers and stuff like that. And I went to review a paper just a little while ago and I realized, oh my God, it's been 10 years since I, I looked at this topic and the technology has gone, you know, and the research has gone quite advanced in that 10 years. I did really want this job at the University of Waterloo, but it also meant closing the door on some of my research. So that was a little sad for me, uh, you know, because you spent a long time, I spent a lot of time doing my PhD and I was well-known within the community. I have a couple gold medals for solving SAT on my shelf in my desk because we'd have competitions to see who SAT solvers can solve the problems the <laughs> fastest. And I was very good at solving a certain type of problem and stuff like that. I did really enjoy that research community. Teaching and the other work I do at the university is so fulfilling that I'm okay with that. But I do once in a while feel like that's a chapter of my life that's been closed. But thanks for bringing it up. That's cool. Thanks yeah. for doing your, thanks for doxing me. Thanks for looking into some of my history. <laughs> uh, I, I just thought that was really good. It has like its own thing. I'm, I'm not a logician or a pure mathematics. That's why taking a lot of those courses, I do it for the fun of it, but it, that's really cool. How did I get into computer science? You worked as a advisor for the CS school and then mm. like, like a big question within the university student community and even on Reddit and even prospective students. Like, how do I get into the program? Like, if I don't get selected during my application process, how do I transfer into computer oh. science? So, so this is what I would tell any student. If your heart's dream is to do computer science and you do not get accepted into computer science at Waterloo and your dream is to go to computer science at Waterloo, it, but you're accepted into math. If you're okay going through math and just doing an option in computer science, which is kind of like a minor, if you have, you, you don't really, oh, yeah, people listening one. to that. I'm doing exactly. Like Ina's doing your, you know, so you do get a fair amount of computer science. If that's going to be an okay plan B for you, then that's great. But if that's going to be unacceptable to you, then, and you got accepted into computer science program in another university, then go to another university. That's probably what they don't want. There's probably someone listening right now going, alarm bells, alarm bells, don't listen to Dave. But that's <laughs> that's a simple fact of the matter is if you, if, you, if you really want to do computer science and you didn't get in at Waterloo, but you did get somewhere else, 
don't gamble on the fact that you can come into Waterloo and switch in later because it's very competitive there. If there's uh, one like you, there are hundreds like you. And the simple fact of the matter is we only have so much capacity, right? And it's very competitive to be able to switch in. Okay. When we switch in, we look at your grades after your first eight months. We take a look at how you did in all your courses. We look in particular at how you did in your computer, second computer science course. We look at your first computer science course, but the second is the one we, we really pay attention to. We look at your math scores. We look at your overall scores. You have to sort of complete a questionnaire about why you want to go in computer science. And then we take that all into consideration. And then we have a number and that number changes from year to year. Let's say we have K students we're allowed to let in and we take the best K. And that number can go up or down depending on how other other factors. If you are okay getting a math degree and just taking eight computer science courses instead of like 20, then that's fine. You can come, come to Waterloo and that'll be a good plan B for you. And maybe you'll get, you'll be able to transfer in. But if that will be an unacceptable result for you, then I would take the offer at another school. I'm happy with my eight computer science courses. Yeah, I'm happy with my two, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I told my computer science courses is, like, learning about how database and, like, work in the real-life application. So that's really fascinating, too. I do feel bad, though, with my current students. I have some bad programming habits in there. So don't look at my code base, <laughs> right? I definitely do things. Guys. There's definitely, there is stuff out there that I'm like, oh, I, if I did that, I'd deduct marks for that now. In my defense, I didn't, do my, I didn't do my undergrad at, at, at Waterloo. I did my undergrad at Western. So all those bad habits I learned from the University of Western. <laughs> so, um, if I had gone to Waterloo, I would know better. <laughs> this is why if you're considering about computer science, Waterloo is your top, should be a top consideration. But know <laughs> this, know this on Western and know this on other schools because we are all professional here. <laughs> <laughs> but still, like, come to Waterloo, we are renowned for our computer science programs. You did just bring up uh, teaching during online and how it's a bit different. So could you tell us a little bit about what that experience has been like? Because I've talked to many different professors about teaching online and it's quite the challenge I hear. <laughs> you know, it is quite different. We're figuring it out as we go. I don't want to come off as some sort of expert. The hardest parts are connecting with the students, I think, because I think when like I can record a lecture and I did, I did like for my course, CS 136, I did, I did the whole term. I basically, all those lectures were on YouTube and you could watch the whole term on YouTube and the notes were there and the videos were there. And I basically, I gave a lame version of my lecture. What I didn't want to do is when I was giving, when I'd given my normal lecture, you know, I've, I'd like to think I punch it up a lot. Like there's a lot of jokes or I'd make little, you know, offhand comments here and there. I'd go on tangents and stuff like that. And my intuition was, is that that doesn't fly as well on a video. Like if someone's watching the video after the fact, it's not live, it's not organic. They just want to get to the content right away. So the videos I recorded were very stilted and kind of dry. I did go on a couple of tangents, but not many. But the idea is that I, I have that um, video out there and the students can watch it and they can consume it. And I got some pretty positive feedback about that, but I'm still not connecting with those students. Mm -hmm. right I'm, I we don't have any kind of relationship I I've read body language textbooks and because when I'm up and teaching my lecture I pay attention to his student body language and you can tell a lot 
by body language, right? You can, you can tell the people are engaged, who aren't engaged, when it's time to sort of put the brakes on and uh, tell maybe a story or tell a joke or try to draw those people who are kind of tuning out. I compete with other things, you know, the, people aren't usually watching Netflix or YouTube in my, in my <laughs> lecture, but occasionally they I do. I hope not. <laughs> uh, sometimes they're reading Magna or they are going on Instagram or something like that. You know, I try to draw those students in because sometimes I have advanced students who this is all boring for them. And so I got to learn how to balance that. I also have, you know, confused students who were lost in the content because it's going too fast for them or they weren't paying attention. And so it's, it's a big mix. And when I'm teaching online, I have no clue, none, right? And I can, during a lecture, I can reach out to a student or engage them somehow and try to do something. And, and it just feels so isolated and, 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 I, and I don't get to int that interaction. So that is a big thing that I think is missing. And I feel sorry for the students that they don't get that particular engagement. Having said that, when I was teaching 136, I had 1,600 students. It was a very large class this year. And what we did is we set up a Friday chat and said, okay, who wants to just come? And we would chat about things like WandaVision or other things like that. And because they said, because, you know, we need to connect and we won't talk about core stuff. We could talk about anything. And, and it's hard to talk about those stuff during office hours. Like, yeah. Office. And yeah, in the office hours, we had, you know, you have, if you have a lineup of students, you can't, you're kind of just fighting fires, right? Okay, I'll let me help you through this problem. Let me see why in this concept. Okay, cool. I'm going to get to the next student. So it's not quite the same as interacting with a student outside of the classroom in the real world. Yeah, but I was going to say, I, I set up these sessions for students to attend where they could talk and not very many showed up. So then I'm even more frustrated at how do I engage people and how do I build up a, a rapport with these students so invite um, them yeah. to math talk games because you're always there. <laughs> <laughs> i try to attend math sock games night if you're listening to this and you don't know what you're talking about you may not even know what math sock is oh yeah math sock is stands for mathematics society it's your undergraduate student government within the faculty of mathematics one of the events that they host on a weekly basis every term is games night when we were in, on campus back during the not pre-COVID days, it would be, or when you're listening to this, it will be in the coffee and donut shop and the mathematics computing building, which is the MC building Dave has been referring to. But now we're all online on Discord and anybody is welcome to join, even like just prospective students like yourself who might be considering. <laughs> friendly folks, friendly folks, myself included, and so is Dave. Yeah, come yeah, I try to Dave. go when I can. <laughs> um, I used to go to the, the physical in IRL, if the kids want to say in real life, <laughs> math, games nights, and um, we'd have game night with profs where we would try to invite even more professors out. Uh, the real ones I try to attend like once a month. It's, when my kids get older, I think it'll be a little bit easier. It's a tough, it's tough to, to, it's a tough sell to my wife to say, hey, I'm going to go play some board games with some 20 year olds while you are changing dirty diapers at home. It, it is a bit of a tough sell. Yeah. But for me, that is actually, it's, it's enjoyable for me and it's enjoyable. Usually I would hope it's enjoyable for the students to have this sort of interaction. Also, it helps me, as I said, find out like, oh, you're all watching Rick and Morty. Maybe I should pay attention to Rick and Morty, that kind of stuff. I do like that kind of stuff. And I do like kind of knowing what the, what the attitude is and what the sense is of the students that you may, and I get that sort of experience that I don't get quite in the classroom. 
And so I do kind of like that interaction. But I think Ina would even agree the way that the Math Games Night students are there just to connect with each other too. It's not always just about playing games. Yeah, we, we go on tangents and just have like these hour long just chatting calls. Because humans are social creatures. Even, even the most introverted people still need to, to connect with people. And so I think it has evolved into that most recently. You should subscribe to this podcast. <laughs> you should subscribe to this podcast. My eight-year-old daughter likes to put on shows. So she'll like dance in the living room. You know, she makes everyone sit on the couch and she'll dance on the living room. She likes to put on little shows. And uh, once a couple of years ago, I don't even know, think she really realized that she goes, don't forget to click like and subscribe below. <laughs> <laughs> She's watched so much YouTube. She thought that's just a normal thing people say. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they grew up with YouTube. I remember the days when YouTube wasn't big. It wasn't like a even an income work platform it would just for labs and gags like the double rainbow song or some funny video clips now it's like huge like people want make the professions youtubers or bloggers youtube is just an amazing piece of technology that has enabled so many people and just changed the way um, people consume media really I think um, I talk about this sometimes in my lectures, I like to make pop culture references and it's very hard these days because all the students are watching different things. In the old days, maybe when you were, when you two were very young, you know, there's only a few TV shows and everyone kind of watched the same TV shows and you can make references and everyone would get them. <laughs> and now everyone has their own personalized media People watch things out of stream. You know, people are watching The Office now. I'm amazed sometimes when I walk down the hallways and I see students with like older shows on their laptop, like or The like Office. Friends, office or friends. In the office or the yeah. friends on people's laptops. <laughs> in the old days, like when I very first started teaching, you know, friends would be on. Friends wasn't a problem. Let's just say The Office was on. And then the next week I can make a joke about that episode of The Office and like everyone would get it because everyone was watching it when it was on. Mm -hmm. And that is a very different, and I think YouTube is just, I think it's just fascinating the way it's changed the way that people consume media. I've also talked to students who get sucked into YouTube or TikTok. You know, they'll say, you know, I'm trying to work on my assignment and I go to TikTok for five minutes and then three hours later, uh, I haven't haven't got anywhere on my assignment. (laughs) And I think that is quite detrimental. I mean, you know, every generation procrastinates. But this year, the you know the students coming in now, their procrastination is held up on a silver platter, and it's not even fair against them. It's like they use the same training that they use for slot machines to get people addicted to stuff, and right, and they they get people addicted to TikTok and like they, that dopamine level. Like you feel you feel not. I don't know if you feel good watching it. It just oh, I might as well just watch the, the next video with it or have a queue lined up. Yeah, and, and, and it's perfectly predicted one that you want to watch based on your history, right? And so it's cater-made to you. When I was your age, once 10 o'clock hit, there wasn't much on TV. At least then I would get some work done. <laughs> and when I was your age, that time slot of when people would watch, uh, there was shows that I would stop my homework because the show was on, right? Yeah, we had like VCRs. prime-time TV Yeah, prime-time shows, shows and yeah. stuff like that. We're coming to a close on our podcast. Man, and now it goes 
like time really flies when you're having fun we have one last question all right so uh we've been talking about how we want to wrap up our podcast and we wanted to really end it on a fun interesting note related to math or computer science so the last thing we want to ask you uh dave is what is your favorite sort of hidden fact within computer science <laughs> like people, oh like like, like when you be. get deep in there yeah mm -hmm. what is your people what is my most know. favorite thing hmm that is interesting i think well, because I did do my PhD in logic, you know, I'm always fascinated at how much in the, the universe can be broken down into logic. We run computers with ones and zeros, right? Because that's the way we think. But there are certain things in the world that are also closely related to logic and the way things work. And it makes me feel like there's some sort of order to the universe and stuff like that. And even the fact that every language on earth has the concept of and or not, and that that might be false. something, you know, every independent, like, you know, if you take some remote village that has no contact with the outside world and you understand their logic and how their communication works, they all have some fundamental understanding of those concepts. And I find that, I think it's, it somehow speaks to, to me I think that's kind of interesting. Another thing that was fascinating for me is that physicists study a very similar problem to what I study, and that's called glass. Which I think just G-L-A-S-S. G-L-A-S-S. The way that glass forms is very, like it's complicated. The way that glass forms is actually very similar to the way logic problems are solved. It just kind of just opens your eye up to, to how many other things out there are related, even the way that biology and some proteins interact and all of that can be reduced to some sort of math. And then eventually down to logic can be described in ones and zeros. I think there's, there's something there underneath there. And if you're the kind of person who believes that we're all living in a simulation, maybe these are all just, <laughs> you know, there's those people who believe, oh, we're all totally living in a simulation right now. The BBDs is like, or this, you're seeing the matrix underneath it sort of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And there's all these things that are related. I do get in touch with that sort of connection to the universe and humans and biology and all that stuff together. So after I showed everything is math because logic is math. Most professions would not survive without mathematics. What can you when, do with a math degree? Well, what can't you do? Yeah. The question and, is, what uh, can't you do? Don't forget get that youtube only runs because computer science works so there you yeah, go there's uh, yeah. something like, right there going, like going into a full circle the youtube you consume the spotify you listen to that designed by a programmer a computer scientist the diet coke you drink or the coke zero man i always forget those ones but <laughs> i i teach cs 100 which is sort of introduction to computing and i do sort of break it down and say okay why are things measured in ones and zeros and YouTube is basically just a bunch of ones and zeros being manipulated with and, ors, and nots, basically. And that's it. And, and you get to watch some pretty wacky crap on YouTube <laughs> <laughs> because of all those ones and zeros interacting in very simple and sort of fundamental ways. Yeah. Cool. It's really magical. It really Everything. is. Look up, uh, look up more about this. Uh, like seriously, Google it. it. There's a lot of interesting things about it. If you just look up like NP problems. So <laughs> yeah.
Thank you so much, Dave, for coming in to our podcast, our end podcast episode. And Thanks for inviting me and giving me such softball questions too. Alrighty, everybody. All right. Where can people find you if people are interested? If you Google Dave Tompkins, you should be able to find me within a few hits. If you Google Dave Tompkins Waterloo and you can't find me, then you really suck at Google. <laughs> um, yeah. Cool. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a great day, Dave. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye, Dave. <laughs>